Our scripture reading for today comes from one of David's Psalms, the 86th. It is the basis for today's message. Listen, Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Protect my life, for I am faithful. You are my God, save your servant who trusts in you. Be gracious to me, Lord, for I call to you all day long. Bring joy to your servant's life, because I turn to you, Lord. For you, Lord, are kind and ready to forgive. Rich and faithful love to all who call on you. Lord, hear my prayer. Listen to my plea for mercy. I call on you in the day of my distress, for you will answer me. So far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Lord, now may the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts be found acceptable in your sight, for you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This morning, as I said earlier, we're going to start a new series called The Four Sides of Forgiveness. We're going to be looking at what the Bible teaches us about forgiveness from four different angles so that we can learn to walk in true forgiveness more consistently in our daily lives. The very first side of forgiveness that we're going to be looking at today is that for God's forgiveness of, uh, for you and for me. Now, I don't know about you, I can't read your minds, but I, I'm going to confess to you that sometimes I just don't feel all that forgiven. And I say that even after following Jesus uh, my whole life and even after everything I'm supposed to know about Bible doctrine and all the sermons I've ever preached on the subject, there are some times when I still just don't quite feel forgiveness. And, and because of that, and maybe that's what's really prompted this message series, there are times that even I uh, have to go back to what I'd call square one and remind myself once again about what the Bible says about the forgiveness that I receive from God through his son, Jesus. Uh, I'm going to tell you that today's message and maybe the next three after this are going to be structured a little bit differently than many of my messages. Now, usually when I preach, I primarily look at one Bible passage. In fact, our previous one, we only looked at one story about building on rock or building on sand. Uh, But most of the time we start with one passage and maybe a couple of supplemental verses along the way. Today, however, as we begin to study forgiveness, we're going to be looking at a lot of different scriptures, so we're going to be kind of bouncing around a bit because the subject of forgiveness is not something that was just mentioned once or twice in the Bible or one or two Bible passages. In fact, it's all over the place, and in fact, the more I read it, it just seems like forgiveness is almost on every page or so. By the day, I'm using a little bit different Bible translation today. It's called the HCSB. I discovered this one not long ago. I always thought it stood for Hardcore Southern Baptist, but that's not what it stands for. It's actually the Holman Christian Standard Bible, and I've discovered it's a pretty decent translation. In fact, when I prepare a message, I tend to look at every passage in a variety of different translations, not just, for example, the King James or the NIV or the RSV or the ESV. I'm trying to get a a more thorough understanding of the complete meaning of the original text, whether it be in Greek or Hebrew. 
And now, all of you probably got your own favorite translation. I would suggest that when you do study the Bible, when you do read the Bible, that you might stretch yourself a little bit and look at how other translations look at that verse. You can find that all over the place in, uh, on the computer. And you'll be amazed at how it gives you a deeper and greater perspective of biblical truth. Now, I said we're going to take a look at a, a number of verses in the Bible. And some of you might actually be surprised today to hear what the Old Testament says about forgiveness. Now, you might say, well, why surprise? Well, it's because uh, we often uh, hear that God, the God of the Old Testament was some angry old dude uh, who's just vindictive and mean and ruthless. He's just out to wipe people off the map. In fact, I'll tell you that I kind of grew up learning that even though I went to a Lutheran elementary grade school. It was kind of the Old Testament was nothing but law. It was like what God was going to do to you evil, wicked, bad, and nasty people. And then all of a sudden, here comes the New Testament, and we've got Jesus, and everything is okay now again. But you soon discover, as you actually read the Old Testament, you discover a God of grace and mercy and compassion, and best of all, a God of forgiveness. And a great example is just that one verse I read to you from Psalm 86 a little while ago. Verse 5, David says, For you, Lord are kind and ready to forgive. Now, I like that little phrase. It says he's ready to forgive because many times we're tempted to think the exact opposite, that somehow God is not ready to forgive. Instead, he's kind of kind of inclined to withhold forgiveness when we need it. But that's simply not true. God is ready to forgive. And then David actually added that next little phrase, when he said, you are abundant and faithful to love to all who call on you. So I hope more than anything else today that you just remember that God is ready to forgive. I mean, even more, it seems that we're, in fact, he's, he's, he's more ready to forgive than we are sometimes ready to be forgiven. So he wants each of us to be in a right relationship with him, a relationship in which nothing stands between us. And because he's taken every step to forgive our sins we can be in that close relationship with him. Now, what that means is that you can be forgiven. It also means that you can know that you are forgiven. And thirdly, you can also learn to bask in your forgiveness. And you know when that happens? In those times when the accuser uh, begins accusing you and and your mind starts playing tricks with you and you begin to second-guess the status of your relationship with God... You can go back to square one and remind yourself of what he has said in his word and remind yourself of what God has done for you through his son, Jesus, the Messiah. And so I hope that you'll kind of take note of the scriptures and some of the key ideas of this message so that when you need to remember what God says about forgiveness, you got it right there in black and white. Today we're going to just look at three elemental principles that relate to to the forgiveness of God. And here's elementary, elementary, no, this isn't going to work today, is it? There we go. Here's elemental principle number one. God forgives us once and for all and forever. See, God doesn't just forgive you part of the way or part of the time. His forgiveness is complete. When he forgives, he forgives it all and he forgives it Forever. In Micah chapter 7, for example, it says, He will again have compassion on us. He will vanquish our iniquities. 
you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Now, let me ask you this question. How, how great is the sea? How great is the ocean? I mean, how deeply could an ocean or a sea swallow our sins? Now, has anybody ever lost anything in a pond or a river in their life? You ever lose anything in a pond or a river? Uh, I regret to say that when I was a senior in high school on choir tour out in Wichita, Kansas, if you ever get to Wichita, Kansas, I don't remember the name of the park, but there's a pond in the park. It was a hot day, and I decided to dive into that pond with my glasses on. And when I came up, the glasses were gone, and I never did find them. In fact, I'm going to tell about my daughter. I asked her whether I could say this or not, but a year ago on a business trip out to California, she lost the keys to her rental car in the Pacific Ocean. Now, guess what? You can lose them in the ocean. And it's the same with our sins. Whatever price tag you think your particular sins deserve, whether you consider yourself to be a normal sinner or one of those, you know, evil, wicked, bad, and nasty kind, whatever price tag you think your sins deserve, when you bring them to God, he tosses them over the side of the boat and lets them just kind of drift to the bottom until they're lost on the ocean floor, never, ever to be seen again, just like my glasses just like those keys to the rental car. The problem is, we have a habit of going deep diving for them. We have a habit of remembering those sins and reliving those sins and reliving the pain, reliving the shame again and again that our sin uh, has brought into our lives. And see, that's what the accuser does. He comes around from time to time to remind us of our past. And sometimes, guess what? The accuser is not, you know, what we think of as that little guy dressed in red with horns and a pitchfork, sometimes the accuser is dressed as your spouse or as a parent or as a child or maybe even a friend. And when that accuser comes, they kind of throw your sin back in your face and they say, look what you did. You're a horrible person. Don't you dare forget what you did. I'd venture to guess that every last one of you has had someone like that in your life who's more than willing to remind you of something bad you've done in your life. Now, that's what the accuser says. But God says about your sin, it's gone. It's at the bottom of the ocean. And don't you dare forget it, and don't go diving for it. Now, what else does God say about your sins? Isaiah 38. Your love has delivered me from the pit of destruction, for you have what? thrown all my sins behind your back. How far can you throw anything? Uh, There was a quarterback at the University of Nebraska when I was in high school who could throw a ball eight yards on his knees. Now, he was six foot seven. I remember that. But he was on his knees and could throw a football 80 yards. I have seen baseball players in the deepest part of center field throw a ball on the fly 440 feet to home plate. How far do you think God can throw? Any further than that? A few feet maybe, a few miles, whatever. I mean, certainly God could throw something farther than you and me could possibly ever throw it, and possibly farther than we could even see. And the Bible says that God throws our sins behind him, and because God is forward-looking, he's a forward-moving God, you can be sure that whatever God 
puts behind him today is gone for all eternity. Here's another thing the Bible says about God's forgiveness. Psalm 103. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgression from us. Now, David is trying to illustrate an idea that words can hardly express. I mean, because how far is it? I mean, how far is the east from the west? I mean, how far is it from one end to the other? Well, it's a distance that can't be measured because there's no end in either direction. Now, how does he do this? I mean, how does he forgive like that? Well, that brings us to elementary principle number two, which is this. God forgives us once and for all and forever through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. That's how he can do it. Now, we all know that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. We've heard that our whole lives. Uh, Even people uh, who have never been to church are somewhat familiar with that phrase. I know that because I've experienced in the last couple of weeks in my normal morning routine to go get myself a cup of coffee. I've taken the opportunity the last couple of weeks to make uh, several interesting new friends. And uh, when this one friend, I'll call, I'll call him a friend, kind of a developing friendship, said, so what do you do for a living? Uh, I said, well, it depends on the day I do it. I mean, the day I get paid, which is about once a week. I said, but I'm actually a, a, a pastor. Oh, person said, I said, yeah, oh, so you're all about that Jesus dying on the cross stuff. And I said, yeah, I'm all about that Jesus dying on the cross stuff. I said, so are you a believer? He goes, no, but you know about Jesus and all that dying on the cross stuff, right? He says, oh, yeah, I've heard that. I've heard that before. I'm just telling you that there are people who know about it. I mean, you've known about it for your whole time, but even people who have never been to church, even people who don't care about church are somewhat familiar with that phrase. Yet, so I'm going to say, we know the phrase, Jesus died on the cross for our sins, but I'm not sure that we understand what we actually know about it. We know the phrase, but what do we actually know about the full meaning of his death? I think it pales in comparison with what we don't know. I mean, Paul, the guy in the Bible who wrote authoritatively about spiritual truth and Christian doctrine, refers to the gospel, which is Jesus and dying on the cross stuff. He called it a mystery. He's saying that what we know about that and what we understand barely even scratches the surface of all that it means. I mean, there are some things in life, for example, those things in life that touch us most deeply that we can never adequately put into words we we can't really fully describe them or explain them and the example i give you is the experience of falling in love we try to describe it in words and the best we can come up with is something like this i'm not going to sing it for you but you know fly me to the moon let me play among the stars let me see what life is like on jupiter and mars you know that song you know what the next line is? In other words, hold my hand. <laughs> you see, simply saying, hold my hand, does not even begin to fully describe or even partially describe what actually happens when that person you love takes your hand in theirs. And so we try to describe 
that experience of falling in love with all kinds of symbols and metaphors and goofy Frank Sinatra songs, and even all that we say about navigating the universe and visiting foreign planets, uh, you know, in the full bloom of spring, that doesn't even begin to do justice to what falling in love is all about. Maybe this little metaphor helps us get a little bit closer, but is that all there is to love? There are more to that than that. See, falling in love and wanting to share every part of your life with another person is a mystery that you can never that can never be fully articulated with mere nouns and verbs. And there are many experiences in life that fall into this category. For example, the experience of having a child. Kind of hard to put into words what that whole experience is like. Or the experience of losing someone close to you, the death of a loved one. It's, it's hard to put into words. We kind of stagger around and don't know quite what to say. See, words don't come close to capturing the full meaning of these very real events. We can only try. Now, the point I'm getting, I want you to understand that it's the same when we talk about the meaning of the death of Jesus. So the Bible illustrates this in a variety of different ways. In some places it's called a sacrifice. We kind of know what a sacrifice is. Some places it's called a, an atonement. When I was in grade school, I remember they taught us this word vicarious atonement. And I remember our teacher saying, well, vicarious, some of you know we have a vicar in our church. Vicarious a vicar is someone who stands in the place of someone else. The vicar is in charge when the pastor is not there. He's kind of a pretend pastor. So we know a vicar. And we got that word atonement. We can break that into three parts. At one meant. So it's somebody who stands in the place for somebody else who makes us at one with somebody else. That's vicarious atonement. Or we call it a substitutionary payment. Kind of like putting a pinch runner in in a baseball game. Uh, some people call it a ransom, and on and on. And all those word pictures give us, at best, only a glimpse of the full meaning of the death of Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite Christian authors, said something about this. He wrote, we are told that Christ was killed for us, that his death has washed out our sins, and that by dying he disabled death itself. This is the formula. That is Christianity. That is what has to be believed. Any theories we build up as to how Christ's death did all this are, in my view, quite secondary. Mere plans or diagrams to be left alone if they do not help us, and even if they do help us not to be confused with the thing itself. All the same, some of these theories are worth looking at. I mean, even a great theologian like him said, I I really can't even begin to explain what the death of Jesus Christ is all about. But I think more importantly, you see, that even though we may not understand it fully, and that's why it's called a mystery, we do know something, and that's that through the death of Jesus the Messiah, we are forgiven once and for all and forever. A few Bible passages to back that up. First John 2, 2. He himself, and there's another great word, is the propitiation. I love that word, too, for our sins. Uh, this is from the HCSB, the Hardcore Southern Baptist Bible. Well, not really, the Holman Bible. But other, tra- other translations I looked at call them the atoning sacrifice. That he's the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He's the one who was, was sacrificed for our sins. And not only for our sins, 
but also for those of the entire world. Or in 1 Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. And righteousness is one of those big words that just kind of means right living and right thinking and right doing. By his wounding, we have been healed. And by the way, when Peter uh, quotes that verse in chapter 2.24, he's actually quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. Or Paul in Romans 5.10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved through his life? So there it is, friend. We are saved and forgiven through the death of Jesus Christ. And I think one of the best summaries comes from John the Baptist. Remember when he saw Jesus coming? He said what? Behold the Lamb of God. Or look, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, we could spend an entire lifetime. And indeed, I would tell you, I spent almost my entire lifetime trying to understand what the death of Jesus really means. And it's certainly worth continued study. But I'm I'm going to boil it down. Here's as much as we really know. When Jesus died on the cross, somehow, some way, all the sins of the world, including yours, past, present, and future, were placed on him. And all the wrong that you've ever done, all the wrong that you'll ever do, all the wrong that the entire world has ever done or ever will do, was paid in full, and you and everyone else was Forgiven. See, because of his death, that gap that exists between you and a right relationship with God was permanently bridged. So all I'm saying is any disapproval that you may think or may feel from time to time, like feeling that you don't deserve, has been transformed into approval. We're never really going to fully understand all of the hows and whys and And believe me, theologians can sit around for days and debate the finer points and details, and cynics and atheists can mock the entire idea. I have read so much garbage in the last couple of weeks about people denying Christ. And, you know, I I read about uh, one of our so-called Christian denominations uh, that has suggested that they take down all of the crosses in their church so as not to offend anyone. Now, when I read that, there's one Bible passage that immediately popped into my mind. It's in 1 Corinthians. Christ crucified is a stumbling block to the Jews and the Gentiles. Guess what? It's also a stumbling block to people who call themselves Christian, who I have a hard time calling Christian, even though they might go by a denominational name that is oftentimes associated with being Christian. It says, yet to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is God's power and God's wisdom. See, whether we understand it or not, the deep meanings of Jesus' death, we can experience it, even while we explore all of the theological implications. So when you find yourself feeling not all that forgiven, it's time to go back to square one again, to the fundamental Bible truth, this gospel mystery, even though you don't completely understand everything there is to understand about it, but just know this, through Jesus the Christ and his death on the cross, you have been forgiven once and all and forever. That's it. Well, that brings us to elementary point number three. 
God forgives us. Or once, uh, you're forgiven once and for all and forever, even though you can never earn or deserve God's forgiveness. Simply put, God's forgiveness is not based on who you are, how good-looking you are, how much money you have, or whether you're Lutheran or whatever. It's based on who he is. got nothing to do with you. got everything to do with him. When you ask someone else for forgiveness, and I'm sure you've all done that at some time or another, you've, you've done something stupid, and you go to ask them for forgiveness, and by the way, we're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks, what you do when you need to go to somebody else and ask for forgiveness. There's a better than even chance that they're going to base their decision to forgive you according to whether or not they think you deserve it. You've probably all had that happen already. You've gone, asked for forgiveness, and they looked at you and they said, go take a fly and leap. I'm never going to forgive you. That's because they don't think you deserve it. God does it a little bit differently. In fact, God does it completely differently. And, and that's good for us because when it comes to deserving his forgiveness, here are the results. We don't. We don't deserve his forgiveness. We don't deserve God's mercy. There's no way that we can work our way into deserving. Now, we try that on the human basis. Oh, Mom, I'll never do it again. I promise I'll never, never do it again. Please let me back in. Now, Mom may weaken and say, oh, come on. You know, but there's no way we can beg ourselves or say, God, if if you straighten this out, I'll, I promise to do this again. I'll never do that again. See, if we got what we deserve on a spiritual level. Oh, wow. Do you want that? The Bible says the wages of sin is what? Death. But in contrast, and I love that word but in the Bible in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But, and there's a nice hinge word, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Now, if you've been in the Christian church long enough, you've seen this passage too, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is what? Not from yourselves. It is God's gift to you. It's not by works so that no one can boast. Imagine if you could get to heaven by your good works. Do you realize what a rotten place heaven would be? I can't believe Robert is here. I've done more good stuff than Robert has done. And see, you'd already, we wouldn't be in heaven anymore, Robert. We'd be in hell if we were going to be doing that kind of nonsense. Because we'd, be, because we'd be comparing. Paul says basically the same thing to Titus. He said, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy. See, when it comes to experiencing forgiveness... And my prayer is always that people walk away from worship or walk away from reading their scriptures or whatever prayer feeling forgiven. I think about the church that I pastored, Lord of Life, up in Illinois. It was a Missouri St. Lutheran church. It was a mission plant, and it grew pretty rapidly, really a big church. And when we looked at our demographics one time, we realized that about one-third of our congregation were Lutherans of some sort. Not necessarily Missouri Synod, but maybe ELCA, maybe a few Wisconsin Synod, uh, maybe one of the other 25 or 30 variations of Lutheranism in America. The other, another third were people who came from every believable, unbelievable 
believable and unbelievable background. In fact, I baptized people who had been Buddhist when they first came to our church. People who came to our church because they thought we were Mormon and discovered we were Lutheran and actually became saved and were baptized. But the other third was always interesting. The other third of our congregation were former Catholics. And guess what? Guess what the former Catholics really loved about Lord of Life? They said this is the first place that we've ever felt completely forgiven of our sins. Isn't that interesting? They felt forgiven for the first time in their life. See, when it comes to experience forgiveness, we often face one of two obstacles. One of those obstacles, as someone told me not long ago, is this. I don't think I've ever done anything that really needs to be forgiven. I mean, why should God expect me to get on my hands and knees and grovel when I'm not guilty of anything? I don't know. I I was temporarily surprised when I heard that. I just don't hear that very often. But guess what? There are some people out there who feel that way. And so for them, the entire subject of forgiveness means nothing. And I'd I'd be, be real honest with you, friends. If you don't feel that you need to be forgiven, there's not much chance that you will ever ask for it or even look for it. And you're unlikely to be persuaded by anybody taking a whole bunch of Bible verses and quoted them to you, chapter and verse, like you need forgiveness, that all have sinned and that all have fallen short of the glory of God. See, you need, your need for forgiveness is something that must be recognized here in your heart, in the deepest part of you. It's my observation that when people really begin to examine their lives, when people really begin to examine their actions and their consequences, then they, be, un, they begin to understand better where they stand with God and they begin to realize their need for forgiveness. So that's one obstacle. The other obstacle that people face regarding forgiveness, and this one is a little bit more common, you find it amongst Lutherans even, other Christians, and it's the feeling that, yes, I do need to be forgiven, but... I don't really deserve it. I don't deserve anything from God. Guess what? That's true. It's absolutely true. You don't. You don't deserve anything from God. I don't either. None of us here deserves to be forgiven, but that doesn't stop God from lavishing his forgiveness on us. Lavishing is such a great word. Ephesians 1, Paul uses this word. We have redemption in him through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, that he what lavishes on us with all wisdom and understanding. See, God's grace and God's mercy is not something you could ever hope to earn or deserve or because you're good, but because he's good. Not because you're worthy of his praise, but because he is worthy of your praise. So let me tell you, the next time the accuser comes to you and says, you don't deserve to be forgiven, your response can be, oh yeah, tell me something I don't already know. (laughs) But guess what, buddy? My forgiveness isn't based on what I deserve. It's based on what Jesus has already done for me. And the next time you remind me of my past, I'm going to remind you of your future. Friends, this is the way it will always be. No matter how good you get, you will never, ever earn or deserve God's mercy and forgiveness, but it will always be yours to receive. Through his son Jesus, 
God has forgiven us once and for all and forever, not because we are good, but because he is good. And because he is a holy God, he has every right and every reason to withhold forgiveness from us all. But he does not withhold that forgiveness. The Bible says he's ready to be forgiven. And if you're ready to be forgiven, guess what? You've already been. Some of you may remember an old, uh, an old gospel song. Uh, I won't sing this one for you either. I can't quite remember the melody, but the words were, uh, Jesus paid it all, and all to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. See, God is ready to forgive. The question is, are you ready to be forgiven? You already have. Your next step is simply to accept it, believe it, walk in it, and bask in it. Let's pray. God, today I, we turn away from all the sin that's destroying our lives and destroying our relationship with you. And we receive the forgiveness that you offer through your son Jesus. And we ask you to take the sins we've committed and dump them into the bottom of the sea. And give us the strength to turn our back on them just as you have. And help us walk, help us bask in this life of grace. Amen.